Well, welcome. Well, uh, turn your turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-five. We're still in the book of Ephesians. How many of you guys you've been enjoying this uh, study through Ephesians? In a couple weeks from now, we are going to shift gears. We'll be we'll still be in the book of Ephesians, but we're going to hang out in Ephesians five for a little bit longer as we talk about families and marriages and uh, relationships within the family. So we're going to kind of do a family series through the month of September. And then in October, we'll be in Ephesians 6, and we're going to talk about the armor of God. We'll do about a, uh, we'll do a, a lengthy series in October about the armor of God. So I'd love for you to join us there. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things about having young children is how they love to imitate me. Any parents uh, with young children, your little kids want to be exactly like you. They want to do what dad is doing. And Leo, my two-year-old, he loves to help me make breakfast in the morning. And when we're making pancakes, you know, I'll, he, he wants to pour the flour. He wants to pour the milk. He wants to whisk the eggs. And I say, let me, let me help you, Leo. He goes, no, I do it. I do it. Because he's seen me do it, and he wants to imitate me, but, uh, you know, he ends up making a mess more often than not. And uh, he, he wants to do all the things that I'm doing. He watches me and wants to do the same things as me. What a privilege as a parent, as a parent to be able to say that, uh, and, and a terrifying thing as well, right? Your kids, they mimic you. They do what you do. They say what you say. They are listening intently to you. But our privilege and responsibility as a parent to, is to set an example for our children to follow after so that they can imitate us, hopefully, the good qualities of ourselves and learn from the bad qualities, right? Well, we're called to imitate God as his children. And another way to illustrate this idea is considering the light of the moon. Some of you have heard this example before that the, the moon has no light of its own, Right? It's only light is the light that is reflected from the sun. And Ephesians, Paul commissions the church to imitate God's light to people around us. We are called to be imitators of God. What a lofty and high responsibility to be imitators of God. Now, obviously, there's some, there's some qualities of God that we cannot imitate, like his omniscience, right? His all-knowingness, His omnipresence, that He's everywhere at once, His omnipotence, his, He's all-powerful. Those are qualities that we are not being asked to imitate, but we are being asked to imitate God's character. We're being asked to imitate God's nature. And our behavior towards one another is the issue at hand that we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, how can we observe God's character? How do we know how God acts? How do we know how he behaves? How do we know what he would do in certain situations? Well, that is why we were given the person of Jesus to look towards. Because Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the world of his power. Ephesians is telling us that if you want to know what God looks like, what he behaves like, you look to the person of Jesus. He is the exact representation of the Father God in heaven. God made himself visible so that we could see who he is and what he is like, what he is passionate about, what he gets angry about. Yes, Jesus gets angry. What he loves, what he, what he, uh, what he seeks after. Jesus was the ultimate model for humanity, and we're all called to imitate him or replicate him. Now, the standard is very high. The bar is very high, but so is the privilege. 
the privilege of being able to imitate Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, you have God's spirit in you and you belong to the family of God. And having such a high position, a high calling, it requires that God's character be reflected in the way you treat people. It's not an option. If you have God's spirit living inside of you and you are claiming to be part of God's family, you are required to imitate God's character to the people around you. It's not an option. It's not negotiable. Now, the word hypocrisy is on the lips of every person who is skeptical or opposes the church today. Because we say that we're children of God. We say we love and forgive one another. We say that we live by the truth, but then we lie and we hold grudges and we use inappropriate language. And the world around us doesn't believe our message because we only talk about God rather than imitate God. We're not just called to talk about God. We are called to reflect his nature, to reflect his character to the world. And when the world looks at you and sees you talking about God and your stories at church and how many times you've been to small group, how many times you've prayed, what book of the Bible you're reading, but they don't see God's love reflected in your life. First Corinthians 14 says that you're just a noisy gong. You're making a bunch of noise. And you're irritating people. How many of you like the sound of noisy gongs? That's what our life is like when we claim to know God. We claim to be children of God, but we do not reflect his character. We're noisy gongs, clanging cymbals. And we're called to imitate God. Ephesians chapter 4, 25, and we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 2. We're going to read it all at once, and then we're going to come back to certain parts of it. It says this, therefore, having, remember last week, let's recap. Last week, we talked about taking off the old self and putting on the new self, right? That you are no longer that person that you once were. And so Paul urges the church that every morning when you wake up, when you're choosing what to wear, put on Christ, right? Don't put on unforgiveness. Don't put on bitterness. Don't put on the old self. Put on the new self. Put on Christ. And he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Notice that every single one of these verses has a command and then a why to it. This is what you should do, and here's why. He says, put away falsehood, speak truth with one another, because for we are members of one another. And be angry, he says, be angry. Oh, that's that's a relief that he tells us we can be angry. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Why? You don't want to give opportunity to the devil. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion. That, why? It may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That is quite the command, isn't it? 
And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's instruction has nothing to do with how often you pray, how often you come to church, how many small groups you should be involved in. Every bit of Paul's words has to do with how we interact with one another. Are you truthful with people or are you lying to people? Are you angry with others? Are you stealing or are you sharing? Are your words edifying or are they full of junk? Do you have bitterness in your heart or are you a forgiving person? See, people think you can have a relationship with God that has nothing to do with others. I can have a relationship with God and I don't have to come to church or I don't have to involve myself in the lives of others. My relationship with God is my business and don't get involved with it. This is my personal relationship with God. A lot of people think that you can have a relationship with God and not have a relationship with people, but you can't. You cannot separate loving God from loving people. It's all throughout Scripture. that We express our love for God by the way that we treat others around us. When we say we love God, we show God that we love Him by the way that we treat one another. Now, the church can sometimes be the worst at this. We are, and I'll be the first to admit, I am the worst at this sometimes. I've hurt some of you. I've offended some of you. Man, ask my family. I am not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I cannot say that I love God and not love the people around me. Be involved in the people around me. Copying God, imitating God, only means taking seriously who God says you are. Last week, we talked about taking off the old self, putting on the new self. And here, we're going to talk about some behaviors that Paul gives us that the new self is expected to imitate. The new self, if you put on the new self, these are some behaviors, some qualities, some characters of God that you are called to imitate. So the first one that Paul talks about is truth. He talks about truth. Verse 25, it says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his nature, for we are members of one another. First and foremost, the new being tells the truth. It's not a choice. It's a requirement. Why is that? Because lying is destructive to the self, and it's destructive to relations with others. Lies distort reality and accompany every other form of wrongdoing. Think about it. Lies accompany every other form of wrongdoing. There is a lie at the heart of every sin because the devil is the father of lies. Lying is in his nature. According to John 8, Jesus said that there is no truth in the enemy. He is the father of lies. He's been doing it from the beginning. He is corrupt. He is false. Do we have that verse up there? No, I have a different verse up there. Listen to this quote by Immanuel Kant. He says this, He says, by a lie, a man throws away and annihilates his dignity as a man. This goes for you too, ladies. By a lie, a man or a woman throws away and annihilates their dignity. John McKay said that a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. The only place, the the only place anyone can live meaningfully is with the truth. Truth is essential for building community because they're based 
on communities are based on mutual reliance, that people can be trusted for support. And once that trust is lost, it's very difficult to recover that trust. Jesus was so passionate about community. He was so passionate about his church being one. And when you have somebody who lies to the community, they are taking a stab into the vitals of that community. They are disrupting what God has created because God has created this community, this church community, for love and support, for building each, each other up. And many of us, myself included, I can attest to how difficult it is to recover trust once it is broken. Especially when it's between spouses or family members. And when you're living with a lie, it's difficult to confess and step into the truth because of the pain that you know it will cause. When you've lived a lie, and by the way, there's never only one lie, right? It has a multiplication effect. If you tell one lie, you've got to tell a second. You've got to tell a third. You've got to keep the lie going, right? It has this multiplication effect. And it's difficult to confess when you're living in, in a lie because you know that if I confess, it's going to cause a lot of pain. It's going to cause a lot of disruption. And so here's what we do. We wait and we wait and we wait. And the lies build. They multiply. And as you wait, you feel the ugly weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. You feel that weight of your lie hovering over you and the stress of living a double life. Come on. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. I've lived this before. You feel like you're two different people. You want to be this way. You want to confess. You want to come clean. But you're afraid of the consequences. You're, gonna, you're afraid of the pain that it's going to cause. If you tell your wife, if you tell your family members, if you tell your church family, it's going to cause a lot of pain. And I don't want to go there. And so you feel like you have to live this double life. And you feel it crushing you. And most people wait to tell the truth. Until the pain of continuing in the lie is greater than the pain it might take to confess. Don't wait that long. Because at that point, it takes a heavy toll on you. And a heavy toll on your relationships. When you wait until the pain of confession... Excuse me. When you wait until the pain of continuing on is greater than the pain of confession. By that time, your lies have taken a heavy toll on you and your relationships. And it takes a lot to come back, to recover trust. But here, here's a message of hope for you, church. This is what Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Walking in truth isn't always easy. It's never easy. Walking in truth is not easy, but it will truly set you free. The truth will set you free. Confess your lies to God, and I, I promise that his grace will overwhelm you, and he will lead you into the next phase of healing in your relationship. It will take time to rebuild that trust, to regain, to recover that trust, but the weight will be lifted off of your shoulder, and you will take the first breath of fresh air that you've taken in a long time. Because I'm free. I don't have anything to hide. I don't have anything hovering over me. I speak from experience. There was a season in our marriage where I was telling lies to my wife. 
And I, it went on for years and years and years. I'm not going to get into too much detail because it's reserved for my inner circle. But I was telling lies for so long, and I started having a lot of back pain in that season. And in the midst of this, I heard the Holy Spirit tell me that the weight of sin is breaking your back, and it will crush you unless you confess. And it scared me. It was one of those moments where God used a physical pain in my body to tell me a spiritual truth that I needed to do. And so that moment when my wife walked in the room, I confessed and I told her the truth. And boy, it opened up some pain. It opened up a can of worms. But can I tell you, I took the first breath of fresh air that I'd taken in a long time. And my back started to heal faster. And freedom started to come into my life. It is not an easy thing to tell the truth, but it is a requirement for those who love Jesus. If you have God's spirit living in you, if you are part of God's family, you live in the truth. It's part of your new nature. It's not a choice. We don't have the option of lying. But God's grace, when you tell the truth, his grace will overwhelm you. I promise you. I promise you. There might be pain. There might be consequences. There might be things that you got to take care of. But God will come alongside of you and overwhelm you with his grace to say, I'm proud of you. That was hard. Now let's keep going. Let me get you back up off the ground. I'm going to brush you up. Let's keep walking forward. Because that's the God we serve. He's the God of second chances. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, he was thinking of you, and he was thinking of that moment when you would finally confess, when you'd finally step into the truth and not live with a lie anymore. Jesus wants to bring you freedom today. I believe that. I believe that some of you have things that you've been hiding, and Jesus wants you to walk into freedom. Take Take that breath of fresh air. Let's get on to the second thing that Paul talks about. We're supposed to imitate God in our anger. What? Let's read it together. It says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. You know, many people use this text to validate righteous anger and even promote it. It's good to be angry. It's good to be angry at certain things. But but that's not Paul's message at all in this scripture. There's a time and a place for anger. Jesus was angry. He flipped tables in the temple. There was a time and a place for anger. We should get angry when we see injustice, when we see poverty or racism or lies or abuse. It should make you upset. But Paul's message is about getting rid of anger because more often than not, human anger is destructive. It is hard to be angry and not sin. And so Paul's word of wisdom for us is to Escort anger out the door as fast as possible. You can be angry, don't sin, but get rid of that as quickly as you can because it'll lead you down a path of destruction. God's anger is much more productive and free of sin. When God's angry, he executes a righteous judgment that we, have nothing, we, we don't know anything about because his form of anger is, is justice for the world. It is bringing freedom to captives, right? His form of anger or wrath is because, is because the righteous are being, the innocent are being, uh, they're, they're being tormented. And so he brings in his anger to free them from that. We need to let God be the judge and release our anger to him. You know, I remember in the first year of marriage, uh, my wife and I got into a fight. And 
it was like, I know what? We fought? We never fight. Come on, we got into a fight, and it was late, and I needed some time alone. And so I went into the guest bedroom, and I laid on the floor, and I fell asleep for the whole night. And when I woke up, my wife was fuming in the kitchen. She was like, how could you go to sleep without finishing this conversation, without talking about it? We went to bed angry, and we woke up angry. And from that moment, we made a promise never to sleep in separate beds or rooms because we were angry, right? And we weren't going to, that's it, I'm sleeping on the couch. Husbands, come on, don't, don't raise your hand. How many of you slept on the couch? Anybody slept on the couch before? And praise God. Awesome. Anger does not fit well with the, with the new being. And it must be dealt with quickly. The word opportunity, give no opportunity for the devil in verse 27. It literally is the word place. Don't make space. Don't give the devil a place in your life to operate Anger is the inroad for the devil. It is the Trojan horse that often leads to other sin. The devil will oftentimes use our anger to cause us to do something that we shouldn't do. And so Paul's word of advice for us is you can be angry, but escort it out the door quickly. Don't let it linger. Don't give the devil any place to operate in your life. Did you know that anger communicates what you care about? Anger communicates what you care about. Oftentimes, it's ourself. When we're angry, most of the time, it's because we feel robbed of something. I deserve respect. They said this to me. They hurt my feelings. And it's about us. Anger communicates what you care about. If, you're, if you see injustice on the news, if you, if you see injustice or abuse or racism, whatever it is in our community, when you get angry about that, you are communicating, I care about this. I care about injustice. I don't like seeing it done. And that is an opportunity to partner with God in your anger. Say, God, how do you want to use this passion that I have for this injustice? How do you want to bring about freedom in their life? How can I partner with you and not sin? It's difficult when we're angry to do that. When you're angry, what are you communicating that you care about? The third thing is productivity. We are supposed to imitate God and our productivity. What do I mean by that? Verse 28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, I have never stolen anything in my life, not even a piece of candy. Although, I have to confess, this is my confession time, I have gone and seen a movie at the movie theater and then jumped into another movie right afterwards. (laughs) Anybody else on that? I don't raise your hands. (laughs) This is being live stream. We caught you. You're on camera. You are now, you're going to jail. And my wife was with me, though, okay? She was with me. You hear that, officer? She told, it was the woman. She deceived me. Yeah, no, it's Christina. Christina, Reverend Christina Barnes. She deceived me. 
Now, maybe you're like me, and I may not have taken anything physical, but I have stolen from people emotionally and spiritually. Think about the society we live in. We live in a consumer society. Take, 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 get, get, get. It's all about me. Even our churches have become consumer-oriented. Consumer we have people that come to church, and they don't want to pray over anybody. They don't want to... They don't want to spend time serving in any capacity in the kids or, or making coffee. They just want to come and take, right? Are some of you feeling convicted? Good, right? <laughs> we live in a consumer society where we just take, 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 and we don't give. We all come into the world for a brief time, and we spend most of our time yelling, pay attention to me, look at me. We want recognition and respect. We get jealous of other people because of the things that they have. So we work hard to get similar things, sometimes at the cost of others. And we take, take, take for most of our lives. But then Paul drops a bomb on our self-centeredness right here. And he tells us that the goal is not enjoyment to experience all the pleasure that life has to offer. Life is not about you. You're not supposed to take, 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 take like the thief. The goal is productivity so that you can give. You can give, give, give. Because what did Jesus do? He came on the earth and he gave, he gave, he gave. He washed his disciples' feet. He went to the, the, the down and the out on the outskirts of town. He brought in the Samaritans. He brought in the tax collectors. He gave of himself. He even put himself on the cross, and he gave his own life. And then he tells his church, you're not alive for you. Give, give, give. That's who your new nature is. You are a giver. You are supposed to, supposed to invest in people's life. You were supposed to make deposits in people's life and, 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 and build them up and encourage them. Don't always take. Don't always be a taker. But look for opportunities to serve. Look for opportunities to give to people. And we imitate God and our productivity by thinking about others first and not about ourselves. Here's the fourth one. We imitate God in our speech some of you are going, uh-oh. <laughs> this is When I first read this, I was like, uh-oh. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We'll get to that last part in just a moment. I remember one of my first jobs was at PDX, Portland Airport, working on the tarmac, loading some 767s for quantum aviation. One of the worst jobs I ever had because you had to wake up really, really early. It was biting cold out there on the windy tarmac. And I worked with guys who told the most foul jokes and they swapped bedroom stories and they constantly made fun of one another. But there was one person there who didn't and his name was Joel. Remember this guy, his name was Joel. And you could see that Joel was a believer. In fact, I approached him and I said, hey, do you go to church? And he goes, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And you could tell that he was a believer because he never participated in what everybody else was talking about. And when it came time to give some, some guys more hours at the job, guess who got the promotion? Joel did. Joel got the promotion. 
because his speech, you, you could tell there was something different about him. There's something that set him apart from everybody else. Pastor, sticks and stones can break your bones. Let me tell you, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will crush your soul. Words are not merely a means of communicating with one another. Words, think about this, words are a creative act that brings life and death into existence. We are being asked to imitate God who brought about all life by speaking it into existence. God spoke creation into existence with his words, with his speech. It's not just merely, me want bread. Communication, it is a creative act. It is something we partner with God. And when we speak out loud, when we say things with our words, we're partnering, we're, we're creating things. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. My wife has been getting our kids to memorize this verse at home. Speak life. is one, What are our three rules? Love God, love others. Speak life. Practice self-control. Those are our three things that we're teaching our kids. My wife initiated, Reverend, Reverend wife initiated this in our, in our family. But one of the things that are, my, my son Gideon, he knows the scripture by heart. He's memorized this. That death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Klein, uh, Klein S. in the NIV uh, application commentary, he said this. He said, speech itself is, cr- is creative activity. For with it, we, we create worlds, communities of shared discourse. And with it, we frame the reality from which we live. Words are commitments. And with them, we enable and support or we diminish and destroy. When you speak to your wife, when you speak to your children, when you speak to your friends or your co-workers, you can either build them up by bringing them life or you can speak death. What does your daily language sound like? Are you cynical and pessimistic? Pastor, I'm just a realist. I talk like that because I'm just real. Okay, check yourself. What's the content of your jokes? You want to hear a joke? Uh, Every time somebody tells that to me, I'm like, I don't know. Do I? (laughs) Are you a sarcastic person that often takes jabs at other people? (laughs) You know, I'm just messing around, Pastor. (laughs) Worship was way too loud today. (laughs) Your message was kind of garbage. (laughs) I'm just joking around. (laughs) You know what? There's, yeah, there's some sarcastic, sarcastic people in the room. Be careful. You know, there's some sarcastic people. When you talk, you better watch out. Your words hurt sometimes. Okay? They bring death. Oh, I'm just joking around. No, you're not joking around. There's a little bit of truth in there, and you're not willing to be honest. Okay? So watch your sarcasm. Ugh, this got heavy real quick. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? This language that we hear, grieving the Holy Spirit, it's actually taken from Isaiah 63.10. It says this in Isaiah 63. But they rebelled, Israel. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. See, when Israel didn't listen to God, it grieved the Holy Spirit. And Paul mentions in this verse 
that the Holy Spirit is the seal of your redemption, that he is the promise of life to come. He is the seal of your salvation. And what Paul is saying is, why would you oppose the person who saved you, your ultimate friend and helper, the one who has been gifted to you? He is a form of God's grace to you. He empowers you. He comforts you. He enriches your life. Why, oh why, would you oppose him by refusing to imitate God in your speech? It grieves the heart of the Holy Spirit when he just, the Holy Spirit gives himself fully to us. And when we turn our back on him, it wounds his heart. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit's saying, I've given myself fully to you. Why, Why don't you listen to me? Why don't you obey my commands? When we don't imitate God, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And the last one is this supposed to imitate God in forgiveness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Christians say we're all about forgiveness, right? We're all about forgiveness. But there is a chasm between our knowledge and our will. We know God's forgiveness, but we don't have the will to forgive. Christians are often no better than others at forgiveness. But here's the thing. Withholding forgiveness is yet another self-centered act where we presume to be the judge and the jury. And it devalues people. It destroys relationships. And all the while, unknowingly, it destroys ourself. When you withhold forgiveness from others, you think you're actually punishing that person. Really, you're only punishing yourself. It destroys people. I'm going to invite Mary to come up as we just talk about forgiveness for the remaining few minutes. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to forgive? Number one, forgiveness means letting go of the past. Does it mean forgetting the past? No, but it does mean letting go of the past. If you don't let go of the past, you'll never move forward onto what God has for you. Write this down if you're taking notes. Forgiveness is giving up the hope of a different or better yesterday. It's giving up the hope of a different or better yesterday. You cannot change your past. It won't ever be different. Your past won't ever change. But you can change your future. If you don't let go of your past, you'll always be living in the history, prisoned by your past experiences. Forgiveness means letting go of the past, wishing that things were different. It won't be different, but you have control over your future. What's your future going to look like? Forgiveness also means of letting, it means let go of power and control. To let go of power and control. Unforgiveness puts you in a place of power, doesn't it? It's this perceived power. And when you haven't released bitterness, you have this power over the person who hurts you. Sometimes this anger is the only power that you have over someone. So the thought of letting it go puts fear and security in your heart. Thinking, if I forgive this person, then they're they're getting away with what they did. They have to be held accountable to what they did. And if you forgive them, then you no longer have control. And 
that's okay. That's okay. Because the sooner you realize that you're not in control anyway, the better your life will be. We have to realize that we're not in control. That unforgiveness is not power. It's not control. You're not holding them accountable for anything. They're probably sleeping fine through the night, and you're the one losing sleep. Romans 12, 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Not that we, we should be rooting for that. Go get him, Lord. Make him suffer. No, that's our attitude sometimes, isn't it? But God says, let me be the judge. I'll take care of this. You don't have to have control. You don't have to have power. Let go of the past. Let go of power and control. And the third thing is, let go of the right. I have every right to be bitter. I have every right to hold a grudge. If you knew what my father did to me when I was a kid, if you knew what my mother said to me, what she did to me when I was a kid, I have every right to be angry. the right i have every right to execute justice and punishment but forgiveness is letting go of that right and it is hard forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me i want to hurt you i want you to know how much pain you caused me so i'm not letting this go because you deserve punishment i have the right to be justified i have the right for vengeance the reasons that we don't forgive others often is, number one, they never asked for it. And number two, they don't deserve it. And understand this, forgiveness does not absolve the offender of their responsibility before God. They're going to answer to what they did to you. But forgiveness, is it releases you from the prison that bitterness has you in. And if you are part of the family of God, think about all the things that he's forgiven you for. And we can start there. That he has forgiven my past, my present, and my future. Everything I've ever done. And so being part of the family of God, having the Holy Spirit in you, means that you imitate God in forgiveness to others. Would you stand with me? I want to invite the ministry teams to come forward. If you have any prayer teams here, just make your way to the front. We're going to leave the stage open, and, and uh, Mary's going to play. And when I get done praying, I would invite you if, you, if you need somebody to come alongside of you and help release unforgiveness, or maybe anything else that we talked about. Maybe, maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you need somebody to come alongside of you and help you to see where you're walking short in these things. Please come forward to somebody up here and have them pray with you. They'd love to pray with you. Would you close your eyes? Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are in love with you, Jesus, and we, we know about you. We know what your word says, but help us to walk in it. Help us to be imitators of God. Help us to walk in the truth. Jesus, help us. Help us to walk in these things that Paul has commanded us to walk in it. And Lord, we just we pray for an 
extra measure, an extra portion of your grace. Lord, we can't leave here today and not be changed by this. We can't leave here today and not do something different. But your word says that this is who we are and this is how we're called to walk. And so, Father, we need your strength. We need your spirit because we cannot do it by ourselves. Lord, I pray for healing over every emotional wound. Lord, the people who have been hurt and they are struggling with forgiving other people. God, I just pray that you would bring healing to their heart. Lord, you would bring self, uh, this, this, this assurance, Lord, this, 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 this confidence that they are loved by you and that you have their back. No matter what they do, you will never let them go. Jesus, we pray for your love to permeate this place. In Jesus' name, we love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. Love you, church. We'll see you next Sunday. Please come forward for prayer if you need prayer.